This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 12, Episode 16, Gary Hoover, Entrepreneur Extraordinaire, talking about his book, Bedtime Business Stories. Our guest today is serial entrepreneur Gary Hoover, formerly the entrepreneur-in-residence at University of Texas McCombs Business School. He founded one of America's first book superstores, Bookstop, and went on to create Hoover's business information company, a leading business reference source. An economics graduate of the University of Chicago, he studied under Milton Friedman, the free market economist, who eventually became his friend. He will share with us today tips for the budding entrepreneur based on his own experience and drawing on business stories from the American Business History Center. He currently serves at University of Texas School of Information in Austin, Texas. Gary, welcome to the show. Hey, Jim. It's great to be here. Well, Gary, please take a moment and give us a brief biography for our listeners. Okay. Well, I'll make it as quick as I can. So I grew up in a General Motors factory town, Anderson, Indiana. 60,000 people live there. 27,000 work for General Motors. And I'm in the classroom, and the teachers are talking about governors, kings, queens, presidents, generals, colonels, about their leadership style, about their strategy, you know, who won which battle and who lost and why, their alliances, how they thought, how they led, why people followed them. And I thought, that's fascinating. They're really teaching about leadership management. And I, well, this is so cool and interesting. And I'd hold up my hand and say, well, what about General Motors? And they say, well, what about them? They make Chevrolet, Pontiac, Buick, Oldsmobile, Cadillac, GMC truck, frigid air refrigerators. So, well, we all know that. Everybody in town knows all, all that. But who started it? Why did they start it? Who runs it today? Are they smart or are they stupid? You know, uh-huh. people may assume that anybody who runs a giant company is smart, but all you have to look at is, at times, Bank of America or Wells Fargo or Enron. If your listeners are old enough to remember Enron, they can look it up. The people that ran it had MBAs from the finest business schools in the world, and they ended up in prison. Uh, you know, they didn't really understand business. Anyway, I ask these questions. Nobody can answer them. I'm in a newsstand with my family. My sister's looking at the horse and dog magazines. My brother's looking at the airplane and car magazines. I discover Fortune, the great American (laughs) business magazine. And on the top there was the Fortune 500. That issue just came out, listing the 500 biggest companies. General Motors was 50% bigger than any other company on earth. It was the best run major company on earth, most successful. And and this magazine, they had articles answering the questions or asking the same questions I was asking. And there were 499 other companies in that list. And I'm like, wow. And right of my parents said, you got to get me a subscription to this magazine. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And they're like, oh, you weird kid. You know, when, <laughs> why don't you go play basketball, you know, like a normal Indiana kid? I guess they didn't have the courage to say go race automobiles. But anyway, <laughs> I got my subscription. And two months later, I entered the seventh grade. So wow. I now live with 60,000 books, including almost every issue of Fortune back to its beginning in February of 1930. I became a business junkie, soon after that a retail junkie, but always interested in a lot of stuff. And my 60,000 books, the biggest area is world history and travel and maps and geography. Uh-huh. Hardly any. It's all nonfiction. It's a reference library. But my whole life has been about understanding what makes businesses succeed and fail. 
And at first focused on big companies and learning from GM and how it was built and everything. But then uh, ultimately got into retailing and realized, well, the real advantage is with the entrepreneur. You can take on the big guys all the time. I decided to go start my first retail chain and led to a life of entrepreneurship and then teaching and now writing. So that's, now, that's a short version. Gary, let me jump in there. Yeah. If you were starting out today as an entrepreneur, what field would you choose and why? And, you know, interestingly, retail, of course, we have a retail, <laughs> the apocalypse. The apocalypse. <laughs> so, so if you were starting out today as an entrepreneur and for all of our listeners who are budding entrepreneurs, what field would you choose and why? The, the main thing in choosing a field is to find something you really love, that you have a passion for. And that's different for every person. And there's uh, too much emphasis these days in business education, business schools. I teach at them all over the, all over the world. I've been all over Portugal and Colombia and the U.S. and all over teaching, talking to business school students and stuff. And there's so much enthusiasm. I'd call it a fad, but that's too simple a word. Hey, oh, I want to start the next social media company or, you know, I want to start the next uh, Facebook or whatever. And every field, every field has business opportunities. They are just right under our nose. And I, I had one student, he loved music, and he'd put on some concerts and things, promoted stuff, whatever. And he'd say, yeah, but you can't make money in the music business. It's all over with because of this or that or, you know, after Napster or iTunes or whatever the excuse was. I said, look, in the next 10 years, there will be at least four or five people become worth $100 million in the music business that mm -hmm. aren't in that business today. <laughs> and maybe they'll be a billionaire or whatever. I don't know. But I said, there are all, there is tremendous opportunities in the music business. It's just a matter of whether you can find them or not. So the, the real key is, is, you know, something you love that you, if you're going to start a company for very few people is the money enough, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you hit that point where you've got to have your investors, federal express, your checks to cover payroll. You hit that point where your partner quits or gets a divorce or dies or, you know, your, your biggest customer says, Oh, I'm sorry, we can't pay that bill. Uh, you know, <laughs> crying at the banker's office, strong reason to, to do it, to but Gary, believe in but the specifically, mission, the passion. But, but specifically, yeah. Gary, what field would you choose today? So, so since that is, uh, you know, unique to every individual and I didn't mention, I started keeping a list of business ideas when I was 12. It's now up to like 350 ideas. 95% of them have never been done. Even the ones I did 40, 50 years ago. And so I, I've come up with new ideas in the last few years. I'm getting a little old to go start them myself and I'd love to have somebody else start some of them. But for me, it's in the, they use funny terms for it, edutainment, the okay. merger of museums, mm -hmm. amusement parks, e educationally oriented, entertaining. Pe people want to have interesting experiences. They want to get out of the house. People do not want to sit in front of a screen all their life. And they've proven that during COVID with the reactions that we get. And real bricks and mortar, in-person, high touch, and you see there's a thing called Meow Wolf in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And they are for-profit, and they made astounding profits, high return on investment from the opening, and now they're beginning to open in other locations. But it's an art experience mm -hmm. where you walk through works of art. 
And uh, you go to St. Louis, it's called the City Museum. It was a nonprofit, it changed to a for profit, maybe changing back, it gets complex. But it's one of the most amazing places you've ever been. It's the number one tourist attraction in St. Louis. It's a, it's a total experience. So there's a bit of Disney World in there. Yep. There's a bit of the Museum of Science, all the great science museums, Chicago, you know, San Francisco. Well, we've, um, you know, we've actually yeah, seen, so we've seen that. Do. Yeah, that's we've seen that. Do. We've seen that here in San Francisco, the edutainment. For instance, the Van Gogh, the immersive Van Gogh exhibit, where you walk into a museum and Vincent Van Gogh, his paintings are life-size and you're walking oh, into them absolutely. and through them. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners, you heard it first from our entrepreneur extraordinaire, edutainment. Edutainment is an area that he would look at today if he were starting out as an entrepreneur. Now, Gary, let's come back to the book, Bedtime Business Stories. I was fascinated by some of the stories here. And let's start off with an old with an old familiar company that you and I would have known from the 1970s and 1980s, Beatrice Foods. Tell us about Beatrice Foods because they had like 400 different companies and they were in, they were, they went from candy to luggage to Airstream trailers to coat racks to everything. Let's, let's start with that as one of your case studies. Yeah, no, it's an amazing story. So Beatrice Foods, uh, and actually they say Beatrice, the people at the company, hardly anybody else does, <laughs> because it was started in Beatrice, Nebraska, uh-huh. and it was a creamery company, dairy, and they they introduced the first nationally branded ice cream called Meadow Gold, right. and they were big in butter and all that, and fellow worked his way up to the ranks because they were just a regional company, and they gradually expanded around the country. Bill Carnes, K-A-R-N-E-S, Uh, He became the head of the company, and then uh, he had big ambitions. He started buying other companies, focused mainly on the food industry at first, brought Dan and Yogurt into the U.S., or he bought them. They were already in the U.S., but they were tiny. They were just in the New York City area uh, or the Northeast, and then he expanded them nationally, made a huge success, and he kept buying these companies, and then he started going outside that he bought the lawn sprinkler company, the hand dryers that you see in bathrooms. He bought Samsonite luggage uh, and, and Airstream trailers, milk duds, all this candy. And a lot of more secondary brands, he bought cheese companies and took them from being like in one state to being in all 50 states. But he gave them – he only bought companies that had great managements. Uh-huh. He left those managements in place. He rewarded them very well when they performed well. And, and he took these little companies, and each of them got bigger and bigger and more profitable. And the company, I've forgotten the details, but I don't know, I want to say like 15 or 20 years of record sales and profits, uh-huh. and like every quarter, like clockwork. And it was considered one of the real gems on Wall Street. Of course. And it was one of the largest, probably like 10th biggest food company or something. And then they kept buying more, And but he had this personal style. Everybody liked him. He was very honest. He was very direct. He really took care of his people. He would show up at a sales meeting, and there'd be 200 salesmen from and saleswomen of one of the companies they owned and he would know each of them by first name and ask about their kids. He worked his butt off, you know, connecting with people, built this great company. And then when he finally got time to retire, turned it over to a couple of his successors who'd worked there all their life. So you'd think they'd understand the culture and they completely screw it up. They fight with each other. They end up, other people buy into the company, take over, then they buy S-Mark, the old Swift Meatpacking, which was an enormous company in its glory days. And, and it just messes everything up. 
It's a total disaster. They actually finally bring Carnes back in briefly to run the company, but by then it's really too late to resurrect, and they split it into all these pieces. So all those brands, you know, Samsung Airstream are still going strong, but they're under different owners. Different it's all owners. split up. Yeah. But just, and, they, and they were briefly the biggest food company in America after they'd made all those yeah. acquisitions. And even, I think, owned Avis Rent-A-Car. Amazing. So it, and it was a true conglomerate, even though he hated that word. He consider themselves really a food company a little little off there but you know people use the journalists all the time use that word conglomerate today and we don't have conglomerates today you know the last two real conglomerates in terms of being in totally totally different in unrelated industries which was a vogue in the 60s there was itt there was litton industries there was golf and western right. there were all these big conglomerates well the last remaining one was general electric yeah. and it fell apart and now it's getting resaved and restructured and then You'd have to say Berkshire Hathaway is a conglomerate, but I kind of view it more as a as a mutual fund, yeah. a very odd one. But it's a it's a it's a different animal, and and it'll be interesting to see how it does over the next forty or fifty years. You know, after Warren's gone, because the idea of the conglomerate didn't work. Right. The idea, yeah. oh, if I can run one business, I can run one, any business. It, that is not true very very few people is that true of let's come back to one of the examples in your book we'll move away from food let's move on to rca rca again <laughs> for our generation for you and me every television in every living room in the united states was either philco or rca or and, zenith or zenith, zenith. and zenith those were players. the three yep. big names Admiral. and yep. Yep. so what happened to rca that was in, you know, half of the living rooms of America. And they were, that was cutting edge technology, TV oh, technology. In state. What happened to them? And they disappeared. They, so Radio Corporation of America was founded in 19 teens and really was a U.S. government backed monopoly, essentially. I mean, I believe that the only way you can have a monopoly is if the government supports it. If you look at AT&T, when it had 85% of U.S telephones, uh, not quite a monopoly, not 100%, but pretty darn close. It was, you know, essentially government supported. So the U.S. government, radio patents were all owned by Marconi Company of England. Radio was only used for ship-to-shore radio, and the Navy didn't want British owners of, our, of a key technology. So the government forced the British to sell it. They put together this company. All the people that had patents early work on radio, General Electric, Westinghouse, uh, Western Electric, they pooled their patents and they created this industry monopoly, RCA. A guy named David Sarnoff running it ended up, he he said, well, you can use it for more than ship to shore and government work. We might even be able to broadcast symphonies into people's houses, mm -hmm. you know, and everybody said, oh, you're nuts. That's stupid. And he finally went out and they created the NBC National Broadcasting Company as their broadcasting arm. It was so powerful, the government made it split into two pieces, the little piece became what we know as ABC today. Right. Uh -huh. And and then they created the Sarnoff Labs and they gave us color television, invented that. They they made all the tubes and everything for all the other TV makers, the Philco and Zenith that we talked about. Uh, there are very few other people you could buy those from and everybody had to pay patent royalties. So the government who had supported RCA hit first then said, well, now you're too powerful. And so here's what we're gonna do. You have to make all of your patents on all your technology free to all your American competitors. Mm -hmm. We're going to make it a lot much easier for Philco and Zenith and all the other guys. And so RCA, unintended consequences, which we see over and over from the government. RCA stops bothering with those guys. Sure, you can have the patent. Here it is. 
but they could still sell overseas. Mm -hmm. So they um, aggressively sold all their technology to Sony and Panasonic and those guys. Uh. And so that, so they, and they stopped inventing because well, if we invent something and we don't have our patent rights to use it, What's... the government's going to take them uh. away. Why bother? And then Sarnoff's son came in and said, oh, we got to be a conglomerate. This is the 60s. And and he bought Random House Book Publishing. He bought uh, Hertz Rent-A-Car and, and just messed the whole company up. It ended up getting bought by GE, who had been one of the founders. And the government had earlier made GE wow. sell its RCA stock. And then whatever, 40, 50 years later, the government lets GE buy RCA. Yeah. They immediately break it up, keep the parts they like, because it did some defense work and some stuff that – the GE liked, but the RCA television brand was sold to the French and they later sold somebody else. Now there were even RCA washers and dryers, RCA Whirlpool and all this. Yeah. The whole thing. Uh, now let's gone. come on, let's it's come on to, to some successful companies that have reinvented themselves. Let's talk about the target story. Tell us about oh, how well. they reinvented themselves because, you know, RCA potentially had an opportunity to reinvent oh, itself, but oh, through absolutely. poor management, but tell us, a success story and target is probably a good success story of a company that reinvented itself. Yeah. You know, it's funny. People tend to can companies reinvent themselves and my studies indicate that 90% of the time they say they are, they don't, you know, it's some ego and, you know, transformational transactions like um, Chrysler, you know, Lee Iacocca went on TV. I've saved it. Well, and it's bankrupt again. Then it's bankrupt again. Right. And of all things, a crazy Italian guy saves it and turns it around and makes it a success. So, you never know. Retailing has actually had at least three major transformations like that. Sears changed from a mail order company to a bricks and mortar company. Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos could learn a lot from. Kmart uh, was Kresge dime store chain, and mm -hmm. they converted to the most powerful discount store chain in America for a period and then lost it. And Target was department store family, the Dayton family, really amazing, impressive people if you study them, out of Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And they had the biggest department. Uh, America was covered in locally owned department stores. Every city had two, three, four, five department stores, and often owned by a family right there. And the Dayton's privately held company, they <clears throat> went public as Dayton Corporation, and then they merged with Hudson's Department Store, which was a giant store and even bigger company in Detroit. Mm -hmm. They renamed it Dayton Hudson. And the bright young, uh, I forget, it was three or four or five brothers took over the company. And they said, well, you know, if we just kind of sit here and don't expand or do anything, then the the relatives and the kids are in a fighting over the fortune mm -hmm. and should we sell the company and we see that all the time we don't want that to happen to our family and our business so the best solution is to grow it and make it bigger and bigger and everybody be happy to stay in it and be part of it so they were one of the very few retail companies another one being melville shoe which we now know is cvs mm -hmm. one of the five biggest companies in america but they were one of the very few retail companies that experimented. And they tried cosmetic stores. They tried electronic stores. They created a bookstore chain called B. Dalton. They tried a discount store called Target. Now, the thing is, all those big department stores all over the country, the big ones, they all tried discount stores. Federated department store, the industry leader, they created Gold Circle and Gold Key. May Company, I used to work there, another big company. They created one called Venture. They all tried it. Well... And the idea was, okay, we know fashion, we know cool merchandise, you know, latest trends from Europe or whatever, and we can bring a, an extra edge to a discount store. We can do something that the Kmarts could never do because mm. we understand all this classy stuff. So it sounded like a good idea. Well, it was really hard. 
and they all lost money. Mm-hmm. You know, Target lost money, and they all lost money. Well, all the others gave up, dropped out. The Dayton family, uh, Dayton Hudson Corporation, said, "No, we're going to stick with it." And they, until you get to the '80s and '90s, and they, you know, Target and bringing cool <laughs> merchandise, Michael Graves, the architect designing goods, and they, they made it work. And today, and they ultimately sold off their department store operations. They later ended up on the Marshall Fields in Chicago and a bunch of other great stores. They ended up basically selling off their parent, you know, selling off grandma and renaming the company Target, and it's only Target. And today, Target is, I want to say, three to four times as big as all those other department stores combined, which are almost all today merged into Macy's. And Target is far bigger, far more profitable, and it's the only national mainline discount store that competes with Walmart. Mm. It's a two-industry field mm-hmm. and in terms of when you define it that way. And so not only did they survive, but they knocked it out of the park, and they continue to knock it out of the park. Well, I'll tell and you. I'll tell you. It's amazing. Your, it's amazing. Your, your book, this bedtime business stories. This is one of the most compelling reads for anyone who has an interest in business, and we all have an interest in business because we buy things, we uh, yeah, consume yeah. things, etc. Once this, in a while, we work for them. Once in a while, we work for them. <laughs> but your book, Bedtime Business Stories, tells the background as you've just related to us in these three stories of Beatrice Food, Beatrice Foods, RCA. <laughs> television and then finally target which is still with us uh, one of the three that's still with us your book is full of stories like that so i really commend it to our listeners now you know gary tell me about the american business history center because who was the president who said the business of america is business i think charlie well yes and engine charlie wilson what's good for america is good for gm yes. and vice versa yes 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 no uh, you know the thing is we all always learn a lot from history uh you know university of chicago is a very much uh, great books traditional learning you know when you study science there you read isaac newton and all mm-hmm. that you know and you study psychology you read freud and jung and all that And to me, you can't understand a field unless you know its history. And the other thing is all the mistakes that are made in business every day today have been made before. Mm -hmm. And all the successful strategies, I always tell my classes, there is nothing that matters in business that's new. Techniques change, whether you use the Telegraph or Instagram to advertise. You know, yeah, those change like by the hour maybe sometimes, you know. But the principles of putting the customer first, totally focused on great products that are better than what your competitors make and all that, those are unchanged. And so I went, you know, Googling and being a lifelong lover and student of business history and, hey, type in business history, nothing, just nothing. And, you know, there's not a weird breed of dog or small town in <laughs> Siberia that doesn't have six websites, you know? Right. And and I'm like, this is nuts. This is nuts. So three friends and I, almost three years ago, May of 2019, we created a 501c3, um, AmericanBusinessHistory.org is the uh-huh. place to go, AmericanBusinessHistory.org. Just me and a friend doing the work, you know, pretty much labor of love. Uh, we don't spend much time raising money. We've raised a little bit. We had an essay contest and gave out $7,500 in prizes to high school kids for writing up a business history. But it's just this huge vacancy. So 
uh, I and sometimes friends, we write a weekly newsletter. We just published our 134th issue. And so 34 of the newsletters are in the book. Now, I love books, so for me, having a nice book to read is really great. But all the all the things that are in the book are available free on the website. And then it has all kinds of other stuff. It has dozens of videos. It has charts that show which cities and states in America are growing and how that relates to business. We try to cover every industry. I've, in recent weeks, I've written up the sewing machine industry, the apparel industry, the book publishing industry, but we cover everything from steel to sporting goods. There shouldn't be, no matter what industry somebody's interested in, there should be a story or two on it. And sometimes there's 10 or 15 stories on the industry. And just the interesting people, the interesting companies, success and failure. And, uh, you know, some are long gone and us old folks remember RCA and Woolworths and stuff. And then others uh, are, but I don't, I don't write up living people. Very often, I wrote one, Fred Smith, Federal Express, because he's so impressive. And I tend, you know, I'm not going to write a lot about Amazon stuff, although I did a story, and it's in the book, on Amazon buying MGM, which is a phenomenal story. What happened to MGM and everything they went through and what's left of it and why Amazon didn't get gone with the wind, Uh MGM's greatest asset that's not part of their deal that they spent billions on. It's just all fascinating, you know. It's it's uh, and it's human stories. Now, it's Gary, just real people. Gary, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, and you've given us a very wide ranging and enthusiastic recount of some great iconic American companies and the importance of American business history. In the remaining few minutes of the podcast, could you share with our listeners two or three takeaways? that the budding entrepreneur can take with him or her and apply to their new business when they stop listening to this podcast and they head back to the, they head back to the workshop. Can you give them two or three gems of wisdom that they can take away and employ in their new budding business? I'll try. When I teach courses in entrepreneurial thinking, as I call it, because that applies to big companies, even government and everything, it's like 45 hours of lecture. So there's a lot there. I will say both in the book and free on the website is an article called Six Simple Steps to Building a Great Lasting Company. So there's just six simple tips, Ah. tips that anybody can find. But, you know, I'd say overall... Be wary of the whole built to flip, built to sell. Like I've I've written a lot of business plans. I've never written one with an exit strategy. The idea is build a great business. If you build a great business, it will have value. And then you'll have lots of options about companies to sell it to or take it public or keep it private like the Cargills and the Mars family do and just make money off of it, you know, and pay dividends. It's about focusing on the customer because – your employees have nothing if you don't serve your customer. Mm-hmm. Your stockholders have nothing. Your community, there's no donations to the United Way if you are not a healthy, profitable business that does it by making better stuff for your customers. And I see companies all the time. There was a guy being interviewed. He had a couple of high-tech startups in the Bay Area. He lost a lot of people a lot of money. I forget when they raised $100 million. It's all gone in two years or something. And they were asking him, well, what did you learn from all that? And he said, well, we didn't put enough emphasis in the product department. You know, we were doing deals and we were raising capital and we were spending a lot of money to get eyeballs on the Internet 
And we had all these priorities and we just didn't pay enough attention to product. And I'm like, it's all you got. It's all yes. you got, you know, <laughs> your product or your service is all you got. And it isn't like a little department. It's the, it's just like in retailing, any good retailer will tell you, well, who's the head of marketing? Well, we call him the CEO. You know, we didn't used to have CMOs in the glory days of retailing. Mm-hmm. You, you couldn't delegate that to somebody. And, and everybody, we always preached, the big retailers I worked for and the ones I started, we are all always marketing. Every party you're at, you know, you've got to say, have you been to our bookstore? You know, and you just, you, the, you have to take the, and you have to listen to customers, which is harder than ever in the internet age. I used to do telephone surveys and say, would you like a bookstore with big selection, low prices? And I would listen in on the phone and people would say, oh, I'd be okay. And then another person would say, oh, that sounds okay. Well, if all you do is get the printout from the service that made the phone calls, you just see two people said, okay. No, that's not what they said. And my ability a desire, but any good retailer, look customers in the eye, uh, ask, watch their body language, see how they walk through the store, see how fast they walk, see where they go, see where they look like they're disappointed. I used to sit out in my car in the parking lot and count the bags coming out of our store. And I'd say, well, you know, two-thirds of our customers are buying. Whereas when I went to our competitors, it was only one-third of their customers. And... You know, and what's the family size, the ethnicity? How much can I know about these people and how my business fits into their lives? What what were they doing right before they mm-hmm. went to my website? What are they going to do right after? And, man, Internet age, it's very hard. Yep. You can't look people in the eye. That's a challenge. And so in many ways, it's that's a real disadvantage. So, Gary, in closing, where can our listeners buy a copy of Bedtime Business Stories? It's a place called Amazon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm a big believer in self-publishing. We use Amazon's whole system to create, create the books. It's amazing what you can do these okay. days. And I spent a whole life, I've been a book collector, a bookseller, a publisher, and an author. And the changes in your ability to publish are, are wonderful. And, and Gary, uh, as a closing thought, where can our listeners contact you if they have a follow-up they have an idea they'd like to yeah. bounce something off you sure what's and the I best, love, what's I the love best way to contact people. you yep uh, they can email me directly it's my name without er so it's g-a-r-y-h-o-o-v at msn.com and i answer all my own emails as quickly as i can and if you forget that you can always go to americanbusinesshistory.org and hit the contact us and it'll come straight to me i also have another website where i talk more broadly about economic and political issues and stuff called hoover's world but i don't post there very often i'm really focused on the business history site but i'm easy to reach you can google me and (laughs) Well, All that jazz. Gary, I want to thank you very much for your time today, your enthusiasm, your energy, your encyclopedic knowledge, both of the current economy and the current business opportunities that are out there for entrepreneurs, as well as the historic opportunities is second to none. Again, thank you for joining us, and we'll look forward to having you back again real soon. I'll look forward to that. It's been fun. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. And for my listeners please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com and subscribe. 
by subscribing. All future episodes will come directly to your inbox, and you can also listen to the 241 past episodes. This has been the San Francisco Experience and your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.